Welcome to Crosstalks, conversations that drive innovation. In this podcast, we featured well-known payments expert Hugo Cuevas-Moore. This series is based on his 2023 book, Sending Money, Forex, Remittances, Migration, and the Fintech Revolution. Crosstalks is published by Crosstech, a conference and consultancy service company based in Miami, Florida. Thank you for listening. Hi, this is episode nine of the podcast, Sending Money, entitled How Remittances Began. I visited Mr. Hector Delgado in his Queen's office in Jackson's Heights on Roosevelt Avenue in, in New York, one of the Latinx strongholds in New York City at the time. I took the seventh train, stopped at the station, and walked down to Delgado Travel, his travel agency and money transfer store, where he was serving his loyal Equatorian clientele. The tellers on the first floor showed me the long, narrow, sloping staircase leading up to the crawl space Mr. Delgado shared with his assistant. He had agreed to see me, so I walked up the steps and his Colombian secretary kindly welcomed me. Don Hector, a man of very few words, looked at me and said, You are very young. It is Mujoin. It was winter, probably 1990. And he invited me to go with him to have lunch at an Equatorian restaurant close by, where he always uh, had lunch and where we could talk, he said. I accepted his invitation and went back down the steep stairs, waited for him at the door while he reviewed the morning's work, checking the teller's numbers. When he was ready to go, the doorman put a large black fur coat on him. He seemed to disappear on the coat. A car came by and took us to a small, popular restaurant a few blocks away, where host was waiting for us. Proud of being an icon of money remittances to his country, this sturdy man with indigenous features from the Equatorian highlands told me how he had started his business. Originally from Manta, a town in Ecuador, he had arrived in New York in the 1960s, opening his travel office in 1976, I remember. Money, transfer, and courier services came later. At the time, he had already decided that he would open a big store in the same street in Jackson Heights and Roosevelt Avenue to handle all his services in one grand locale. Letters, packages, travel, remittances, even a radio station to serve the community. And he did so years later. Delgado Travel was, same as other MTOs in the 80s and 90s, making the transition from money orders to EFTs, electronic fund transfers. He doesn't remember when he bought his first fax, setting one in his office in Queens and taking fax machines to Ecuador for his offices in Manta and also in Quito, then in Guayaquil, etc. When I met Don Hector, he told me he was very wary of working with transfers to other countries, especially Colombia. He felt safe serving his fellow citizens, as well as Mexicans. He knew them very well. He knew their stories, their regional differences, and their needs. Colombians are too tricky, he said. This meeting was the beginning of a long business relationship, because I 
convinced them that we could work Colombia together when I was working in Titan. And this developed in friendship of many years and very, very few words. When he came to the CrossTech conference in 2022, I told him I was using his story in a book. He, he only smiled. The history of remittances to Latin America clearly shows how a need, the economic support sent home by migrants, encourages the development of a service, and how entrepreneurs, such as Don Hector, managed to respond by adapting their operations, finding solutions, developing the networks, and using the technology available at the moment to grow. Whether at the place where remittances originated or at the destination, entrepreneurs developed businesses, and when they were successful, others began to compete with them. Governments, not always too attentive to changes in the marketplace and the generation of new services, formulate regulations in response to perceived threats, the pressure from economic groups, normally close to power, or when scandalous incidents take place that need to be corrected or prevented. For remittances, it took many years for regulations to appear. By then, the migration wave was well-established, and remittance services were pretty much established also. It was not evident in the early years that remittances were vulnerable to criminal intrusion and misuse. Each Latin American country has had its particular development and evolution of the remittance business, from its birth in informality, lack of regulation, to formality, is the same thing in other parts of the world, in Asia, with Philippines, with Vietnam, with China, with India, Africa. Being informal gave it the perception of illegality in the countries where managing foreign currency was indeed criminalized or restricted in some way or another. In the coming episodes, I will go into some detail about the evolution of Colombian, Brazilian, and Cuban remittances as examples of these processes. Many authors have estimated what could have been the volume of remittances in the first years when the Latin American migration wave in the U.S. was beginning. Still, I won't dwell on whether or not these estimates were accurate, since the turn of the century, several institutions and experts have made important efforts to quantify remittances, specifically family remittances, to evaluate and understand the trends. The Inter-American Dialogue, the Inter-American Development Bank, IDB, and SEMLA, the Center for Economic Studies in Mexico, have worked hard in Latin America to develop ways for central banks to quantify formal remittances. The World Bank has taken that task to central banks everywhere in the world. This data started appearing in 2001 and gave the industry a better idea of the volume and the trends of this important economic sector. Graphs everywhere show the volume of formal remittances and its continuous growth in the past two and three decades. But before data existed, Latin American entrepreneurs in the U.S. 
and their counterparts in every country in the region were busy at work developing the networks to make family remittances a reality. When the more extensive corridors from the U.S. to Latin America were being developed, other important ones were simultaneously appearing. For example, U.S. and U.K. to India, U.S. to the Philippines, to Vietnam, etc. Due to the early permeability of the Mexican border and the transnational communities that have long existed at the U.S.-Mexico corridor, Casas de Cambio have been active in managing the flow of funds in both directions, U.S.-Mexico, Mexico-U.S., for more than a century. This moving border sparked the Mexican-American War in 1849, after Americans illegally started settling in Texas and then decided that they wanted to annex the territory that they have occupied to their country, a fact most Americans don't know. Journalist Ron Dungan summarized it plainly. He wrote, In five decades, the border changed from no border to an imaginary border to a disputed border to a negotiated border to a line on a map. A line on a map that some might want to see turn into a 1,151-mile wall with 300 million people, close to 100 million cars, and approximately 5 million truck crossings every single year. To countries south of the Mexican border, frequent travelers began carrying small amounts of U.S. dollars in cash, which they distributed upon arrival among their neighbors to whom the money was destined. Travel agencies were the first businesses to begin helping migrants send money using some of their clients. Some travelers got free tickets if they traveled with money and goods. These travel agencies were either owned by Latinos or were the businesses where Latinos worked. In the Big Apple neighborhood of Queens, Equatorians, Mexicans, Colombians, and Peruvians began to settle, displacing the Greeks and Italians who began to move to more distant suburbs. In the Bronx, Dominicans, Puerto Ricans, and Hondurians began to call this borough home. In Patterson, Passaic, in the nearby state of New Jersey, Peruvians founded Little Lima. Brazilians settled in Astoria and Newark, where an earlier Portuguese colony was located. As with all migrations, communities are grouped based on the town or region they come from. Colombians in Morristown, New Jersey, arrived from Montenegro, a town in the Eje Cafetero, the coffee axis region of Colombia. Jamaicans began to arrive after 1965 when the U.S. stopped restricting Afro-Caribbeans from entering the country and the U.K. began restricting it. Most settled in Brooklyn, where almost half of the 100,000 Jamaicans in the U.S. still live. It didn't take long for employees of national airlines serving their home countries to start carrying remittances, cash from one country to the other. The travel agency will collect the funds from the clients, make a detailed list, deliver the money and payment information to the flight attendant or pilot, and arrange delivery and pickup at the airports at the destination. However, the volume of remittances increased 
and the airlines banned their employees from being remittance carriers. Other internal or regional corridors developed at the same time, as Peruvians migrated to Argentina first, then Chile a little later. Colombians migrated to Venezuela and Panama, Bolivians and Paraguayans to Argentina, then Brazil, Nicaraguans to Costa Rica, etc. These internal or regional corridors in Central and South America were smaller compared to the U.S. to Latin American corridors, but as far as industry development, they were very significant. The risk of carrying cash grew, and the use of money orders, MOs, from now on, by migrants to send money became increasingly popular in the U.S. Became increasingly popular in the U.S. These MOs started replacing cash using the same personal courier services. I mean, frequent flyers, airline employees, and also postal services. Same as U.S. dollars, you needed someone on the other end of a remittance corridor to cash these MOs into the local currency. Casas de Cambio, Forex offices, and street money changers began exchanging these MOs, making a profit, either charging a flat fee or an exchange rate where they could make money in the spread or both. Risks were involved in this exchange, such as ensuring that the MO was not fraudulent. Another issue was returning the MO's exchange to be deposited in a bank in the country where they originated. In the case of the U.S. and Latin America, a U.S. bank had to accept these MOs and credit the funds into a bank account. So the MO had to travel back to the U.S. one way or another. There was also a foreign exchange risks involved, as the process of the MO being sent, received, cashed, flown back for deposit, and the crediting of funds, weeks had passed, and by that time, the exchange rate could have moved against the exchanger. Some local banks cashed money orders in certain countries to their clients, taking weeks to deposit the funds into the client's account and waiting the MO to clear in the U.S. So Casas de Cambio would cash the MOs when they were presented and taking the risk themselves. As the use of MOs spread, the payment ecosystem matured and the business flourished. Travel agencies gave rise to money order couriers, who also in due time became money order issuers. Money order issuers needed a license to sell money orders. The money order industry grew significantly in Mexico, Guatemala, Salvador, and Honduras, and companies grew significantly as MO courier service providers. Informal systems, such as Hawala, also evolved as entrepreneurs devised ways of using funds in the U.S. and Latin America without moving the money internationally. Ethnic travel agencies, the U.S., had corresponding travel agencies on the other side of the corridor, normally run by a family member who could be trusted. The travel agency in the U.S. will get the funds from the written senders and provide a list of payment recipients to the travel agency in the receiving country, 
which will distribute the remittances to the beneficiaries. The local travel agency will find local businesses or individuals that needed those funds in the United States to purchase goods or make investments, completing thereby the cycle. And both travel agencies making money at both ends without moving funds internationally. Some of these mechanisms were very efficient. Since they made a profit from their trade, they could charge less for their remittance payments and offer a better exchange rate, thus providing a competitive price. In Colombia, as an example, stores called San Andresitos had been for many years shopping centers sprouted in major cities for the sale of international goods, some imported legally, some using alternative channels, others outright contraband. The words used in Spanish to refer to remittances can be traced back to all these origins. Most countries use the word remesas, remittance, today, and a remesa means a set of things sent or received together or descending of something from one party to another, not only money. This is the same word as encomienda, a term also used for remittance which means a request that a person makes to another to perform certain tasks or take care of something or someone. So encomienda is also a word that was used very much at the beginning. Colombians did not use the word remesa or encomienda as Central Americans and Dominicans did, and the word giro or envio became popular. And both words essentially mean to send. The word Transferencia, in Spanish, has been used mostly to designate a bank or a wire transfer. Money orders. The history of MOs is a fascinating tale on its own and shows why the post and the sending of money had been intertwined since the start of letter management. In the early days, we can envision steamships, caravans, wagons, horse and camel riders carrying envelopes with letters to the distant corners of the world. And paper currency bills made their way inside these envelopes. MOs just derive as ways for postal systems to take care of the funds so they will securely reach their final destination and prevent thieves from taking the cash out of the envelopes or stealing the post. The sale of the United States Postal Service money orders picked in the year 2000, but it has declined yearly ever since. Despite almost disappearing internationally, USPS sold $21 billion of MOs in the domestic market in the US in 2015, generating $150 million in revenue and $54 million in profit. The $600 million to $700 million outstanding balance of money orders that have been purchased but not yet redeemed also gave USPS significant cash flow flexibility, generating $2 million in interest income, known as float, in the year 2015. In the year 2021, USPS sold $71.5 million money orders. The cash flow that MOs give Western Union is also very large, a fact that is not well known. Domestically in the U.S., 
MOs are mostly used to pay bills by financially excluded individuals. In terms of Latin American immigrants, travel agencies and other ethnic businesses began MO sending services, mainly to Mexico and this Central American Northern Triangle, Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador, where these services flourished in the 1980s and 1990s. The service was not a financial, but a rather a logistics, mail and courier service for migrants. MOs were purchased at USPS offices or other locations and placed in envelopes with letters, photos, etc. that couriers delivered to the destinatories abroad. When the person received the MO, they would need to find a local money exchanger who cashed or exchanged the MO into bills or local currency. Some of the charges that local exchangers used to cash the MOs were considered excessive at the time. But as I said, exchanging MOs was a risky business. Now, the development of money orders as a remittance mechanism is a essential step in the advent of the remittance industry. It led to the creation of companies on both sides of the migrant corridors serving migrants and their families with their money transfer needs. As a result, some couriers became money transmitters when regulators required licenses. King Express is a great example. King was founded in California in the early 1990s by Jose Francisco Leon, Poncho as he was known, and was the leading company in the U.S. to Guatemala corridor in the decade after founding the company. King built his MO distribution network in Guatemala by establishing branches, agents, and home delivery, which included foot, motorized couriers, and even helicopters to distribute envelopes to the most remote villages. The company achieved huge growth, replacing the travelers, the viajeros, and achieving 80% of the U.S. Guatemalan money transfer market in those years. In Latin America, couriers flourished due to the assault and burglaries at post offices and the dishonest employees opening letters and removing the MOs. Although sending an envelope to Guatemala through the U.S. postal system had a cost of 45 cents and King will charge $12 for an envelope, customers prefer the speed, the security, and the money-back guarantee that this higher cost will give them. Other MO couriers developed in those years in that region, such as Urgente Express, El Cairo, Bonilla, Garza Express, Gigante Express, and several smaller ones. After being in business for many years, King began issuing its own MOs with the Grupex brand, getting licensed to issue money orders in California, and later on, when the company began EFTs, electronic fund transfers, it became licensed as a money transmitter. Grupus is one of the few ethnic companies that made it all the way from delivering MOs, issuing them, 
transitioning to EFTs and becoming an MTO until Coinstar acquired the company in 2007. The regulation in the U.S. and certain Latin American countries, uh, the increasing difficulty in depositing MOs in U.S. banks and obtaining bank accounts, the mounting AML issues with bundled MOs, and the constant hassles with U.S. Customs when faced with MOs sent for deposit, despite following all the required custom rules, began impacting the service. At the same time, EFTs, a new breed of money transfer services, appeared using technology, first telex and then fax, to transmit payment information and settle using bank-wide transfers causing the downfall of the money orders. The Mexican central bank, Bansico, in its statistics, shows the continuous decline of MOs and the rise of EFTs. In 1995, MOs accounted for 40% of remittances. In 1999, four years later, it was down to 25%, and by 2005, this percentage dropped to less than 8%. In 2003, Guatemala received 35% of the volume of remittances by King. 33% used Western Union's EFT system. But in Salvador, in 2003, Western Union was the preferred method for 25% of the receivers of remittances. And only 15% used the money order company Gigante Express. After market conditions changed in Guatemala and the U.S., King made an agreement with Banco Industrial de Guatemala, BI, to be the local recipient of the EFT remittances. Gigante Express entered into an agreement with Banco Uno, and King also launched Rey Mesa, his EFT product, but they were behind others in terms of making the change to EFTs. In Colombia, Money order exchanging was a significant business in the 1980s and 1990s. But after several issues with the U.S. Customs stopping courier envelopes, wanting to single-handedly stop money order deposits into the U.S. banks, and also the rise of EFTs, the money order business dwindled. And now we'll follow in the next episode with the rise of EFTs. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Cross Talks, Conversations that Drive Innovation. The book Sending Money is available on Amazon. For comments, questions, and feedback, use our social media channels, LinkedIn, Facebook, and YouTube. See you soon.